access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NADOC! Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. And welcome to the Doing Time Show. I'm Peter. Um, we'll be here for the next hour. Um, I'm just going to talk. There's a um, media release: um, breaking forest blockade established on southern slopes of Mount Borbor to prevent logging of threatened species. Members of, of a community group, Forest Conservation Victoria, have established a peaceful blockade at Mount Borbor in threatened species habitat where they are logging, currently logging. A person is suspected to, suspended in a tree, sit 25 metres off the ground, preventing logging in high conservation area, value, value, value area, sorry. Um, so that's just a brief summary. Uh, Please contact Friends of the Earth for more information on one three double O eight five two O eight one. Cool. Um, now we're going to go to this um, podcast about Keith Matter um, about the Prestio twenty seven mutiny um, fifteen fifty years later. During the Vietnam War era, the Prestio stockade was a military prison notorious for its poor conditions and overcrowding with many troops imprisoning, imprisoned for refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. When Richard Bunch, a, mental, a mentally disturbed prisoner, was shot and killed on October 11th, 1968, Prestio inmates began organising three days later, 27 stockade prison prisoners broke information and walked over to a corner of the lawn where they read out a list of grievances about their prison conditions and the later, the larger war effort, and sang "We Shall Overcome." The prisoners were charged and trialled for mutiny, and several 
got 14 to 16 years confinement. Meanwhile, disillusionment about the Vietnam War continues to grow inside and outside of the military. This was real. We we laid it down. The response by the commanding general charged changed our life, recalls Keith Massa, Prestio Mutineer, who escaped to Canada before his trial came up. He lived there for 11 years, only to to be arrested upon his return to the United States. Matter is currently a member of the San Francisco Bay chapter of Veterans for Peace. So this is um, recording is from a website called Courage to Resist. So it just goes to it right now. When Nixon got elected in November of 68, I decided to escape. That was it. And I was probably right. <laughs> because the war went on for for seven more years. You know? Kinda like what's happening now, you know. <laughs> yeah, just longer and longer wars. So and that's been a a, a real pain in the ass uh, trying to heal up from this last thing I experienced and they keep having these other ones. This is the Courage to Resist Podcast. My name is Eric Klein. Our guest today is Keith Mather, who is working with Courage to Resist to commemorate the 50th year anniversary of the Presidio Mutiny, a historic protest at a military stockade in San Francisco, California, against the Vietnam War. So there's a language warning. I have my own way of seeing it. I have my own memories of the spirit in which we did things. And that's what I'm trying to preserve you know, at least at some, you know, to try to display and preserve. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know where this was all going to go, but we knew what we were doing. You know, we did. We knew we were going to get deep shit. We we, we just cast it aside, you know, because this was too big. They're killing us, man. Who's next? You know, kind of deal. It was tr- a very trying time. Very, I can't imagine uh, or can't think of any other time in my life where I've ever had the levels of stress that I had prior to going to Canada. And even in exile, there was a fair amount of stress there. Then you look at the underground time I spent in Canada, a couple of years, and then and then underground here for almost four years. So, you know, it's kind of like these experiences have taught me a few things. It's really good to take good care of yourself. Get enough sleep. <laughs> because you know, the stresses will, stresses are just, you know, you, it's like Marine Corps. I wasn't a Marine, but they got a great slogan that, you know, so something's bad, you know, screwed up and you got to unfuck it. And I just can't do it to this. I, I, I just can't figure it out enough to, to put it away. So it, it always comes back, you know, it's kind of like, uh, if you're, I don't know if you're right or not, uh, but you know, start a story and you get stuck, you get a plateau or you put it down and forget about it or whatever. And, and then it'll bug you <laughs> and, and then you'll know when it's done or you'll think you do, you know, I mean, 
it's like when it, when I, when I'm writing, if it doesn't bother me anymore, I think I'm done. Hmm. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah. And you're so, saying, but, but this, this is, this still bothers you. Yeah. It still bothers me. And I think things are undone. You know, that's the way it's always felt, you know, um, Whatever that means, you know, it's kind of like trying to right wrongs, uh, you know, or trying to, um, I guess trying to just really kind of, uh, what I'm trying to do on the 50th, I'm trying to pat all these guys I was with on the back. I'm trying to give them their props. I mean, I've gotten mine already. I don't, you know, need it. I really don't. But, you know, the rest of and then Walt, and, and Randy Rowland, he's had a lot of it too. These other guys who were there, they didn't get in the press. They didn't. They're not in the film. They're, you know, they they're there because they were there. You know, and, 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 and but but it's like, and I don't even know what they if they appreciate it and that much. I think they will. But I mean, some of these guys went to you know, pulled jail in other places. <laughs> you know, so. It's not all just a bunch of anti-war guys. These were working class guys that had, you know, issues maybe. Who knows? Yeah. So, uh, as, as well as the guards were the same, you know, same sexually, economically, and educationally. I was brought into the stockade after a demonstration. Uh, in, uh, nine GIs uh, banded together in a church in San Francisco, took sanctuary, held a press conference, resigned from the military, and uh, eventually were transferred to Marin County uh, to another church because we had a bomb scare at the Presbyterian Church on Oak Street in San Francisco. We got to Marin City, went into that church. We were there for uh, the overall from the time of our press conference took place to the time we were picked up by uh, the respective military police and sheriff's departments. It took them three days. We weren't hiding, that's for sure. So it was pretty interesting. It was called the Nine for Peace, and we were all arrested. And well, some got released quickly. Some went, had court martials and 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 uh, and went on to do time in Leavenworth. And uh, for me, uh, one of the nine, I uh, was not offered a pretrial agreement as uh, the others were. Um, because I was the local hometown boy, I was San Francisco boy, and I think that may have been the reason. Um, and so um, I was in jail, uh, um, not knowing what was coming. And in October, um, there was uh, um, early in October, they were taking us all out on work details, except for a few of us that were maximum security. And this gentleman, Richard Bunch, came in. He was a 19-year-old uh, uh, kid, uh, we all were, uh, who was, I think, had a little fried. His brain was a little fried from either drugs or paranoia um, from being AWOL and, and drugs and who knows. Anyway, he was not mentally fit. And uh, he had medication and everything like that from the hospital and stuff, but the, the guards messed with him and wouldn't give it to him and stuff like, you know, it's just, you know, things like that do go on. And, um, and eventually he went out on a work detail with, uh, several other, uh, 
prisoners, soldier prisoners, and um, decided he was going to just walk away from the work detail, you know, and he was kind of like not even his head. Anyway, he got shot and killed, uh, shot in the back he was walk- as he was walking away from work detail, maybe 30 paces away. And uh, so he died in the spot, and um, the guys that were left behind there in that work detail were screamed at, told to get on the ground, and they were, oh, were scared to death. This guy just shot one of them. So they, and then they brought them all back to the stockade, and they spilled their guts to us who were inside. And reverberation went through the, the jail that day. And, you know, there was a small riot. Uh, I mean, we broke some windows and pulled some wiring out of the walls to connect to the speakers. And, uh, you know, we plugged all the locks with, uh, with, uh, with paper and wet paper. And, you know, we just messed, you know, we just like were pissed. We decide to do something. We say, well, what are we going to do? Uh, Randy Rowland uh, uh, had just come in from a demonstration on the 12th uh, at the gates. They uh, uh, were AWOL soldiers demonstrating against the war, walking right up to the gate and then turning themselves in and then coming right into the stockade. And he was an anti-war guy, a little bit more sophisticated had, uh, at that point and had come in with information from the movement, the left, and uh, with a few names of lawyers and this and that and the other thing. We were already getting lawyers for people, you know, by getting their name and getting the lawyer's name and mixed because it, how do you get one otherwise? And um, and so along with him and the fact that, that uh, um, everybody else was furious and uh, afraid and didn't want to work anymore at all, so we devised a plan that, that what we would do is we would go out and get information in the morning for roll call, fall back into chow. Everybody gets to go to chow, use the bathroom, whatever you got to do, get ready to fall out for work detail. And then when we fall out for work detail, we get information. The first name to be called is a signal for everybody to break ranks and go over to the grass and sit down. We had a list of grievances that Walter Pulowski uh, uh, stood up after the officers came up around us and everything and, and to read to them and did read, read our demands. And, and we want an investigation. We wanted on, on, on the murder. We felt, and we still feel uh, Richard Bunch uh, uh, and also the psychological uh, uh, competence of the guards at all, you know, I mean, or, you know, are they trained? Where are they trained to do this job? You know, and, and, um, and also we wanted to have, you know, the same kind of thing, psychological evaluations for all the prisoners too, you know, uh, this was like, you know, ahead of our time kind of a thing because we didn't know what else to do. And we wanted a reduction in, in solitary confinement time. We wanted to eliminate the, the rabbit child in the fetus. If we, if we were in disciplinary, uh, they just give you a, a slice of bread, a glass of water and a quarter head of iceberg lettuce and say, good night. And, and so, um, Things like that, you know. We were, we had five five big ones. The war was number one, uh, and then and then Richard. Uh, so um, we were we got that out, and then they started to read to us the Mutiny Act uh, out of the UCMJ, and so we started singing, so we could not hear them, and uh, or or at least that was what we're trying to do, and uh, we. we 
we sang, the first one we sang was America the Beautiful, interestingly enough. And then we sang, uh, since that, we didn't know the fucking words, uh, we sang, We Shall Overcome. Pretty simple. You can just keep saying that. You got it. You know. And so, um, and we sang that. Uh, and uh, we continued to sing that off and on throughout the period of time we were out there. The fire department was called up by the captain, uh, and he wanted them to come up, and, and uh, they came up, and he said, I want you to hose those guys down and blast them out of there. So, you know, and they said, they're civilians. Go, no, we're not doing that. And he marches back in, and he calls up the whole platoon of MPs. There's a whole platoon of MPs outside the fence now uh, looking at us, and with full, you know, helmets, clubs, you know, no guns, and, and they're going to come in. And we know they're going to come in and we're not moving, <laughs> you know, we're not going to just jump up and we're sitting down here for a reason, you know, and, and, uh, we figured too, the press might get there because we put the word out. We were going to do it when, what time it was going to be, you know, we tried to get it out. They didn't ever show it up, but, um, but our lawyer did shortly, a lawyer did shortly after that. Um, we were all picked up, carried in if we didn't walk, um, and strip searched and I was thrown in a solitary confinement immediately as was Walter because I was the first one to break ranks and, and move. And, um, I don't know who else was, I, yeah, I, I think most of the rest of them were put in, still put in the general population and, and, and then put their clothes back and, uh, everybody was uh, trying to just go, what, what do we do now? You know? And, and uh, Terrence Hallinan was the uh, our attorney. He was a young attorney at the time in San Francisco, and uh, he he took all of them, all of us as his defendants, you know, the defendants took our case, and along with others, there were four or five others. Howard DeNike, uh, uh there was, and we had military lawyers, as I pointed out earlier, Brendan Sullivan being one of them. Uh, I think we had about five five attorney, five or six attorneys uh, at the table uh, during. Uh, uh, most most of what was going on in Article 32 board and and, and the trial. I uh, also, when I first got there, and I'm kind of going to backtrack because it's an isolated thing. Okay, when I first got in to the stockade, I jumped over this. First got into the stockade, I I figured, well, if I'm going to work, right, you know, that then I'm helping them the war effort, you know, really, if I do anything at all for the military, I'm, I'm, I'm perpetuating what they're doing. And so I'm going to do non-cooperation. That's what was my goal was when I went in. And when I got in and they started messing with me, I just went upstairs and I stood in the, uh, the deck upstairs and uh, took off my uniform. And I got a sergeant came over to me and screamed at me and told me to put it back on and he gave me a lawful order. And I said, no. And they called over an officer. He gave me direct order, put my uniform back on. I said, sir, no, sir, I'm not doing it. And um, put me in solitary confinement. Yeah. What kind of of work were they having you do? Oh, you know, splitting firewood, uh, mowing the general's lawn, uh, you know, busy work down at the hospital, uh, laundry, you know, uh, just, you know, Dumb stuff. Um, nothing creative. Um, and uh, and so, but it wasn't safe, you know, because of the shotgun guards. So 
So anyway, uh, I, I spent a lot of time in solitary confinement and I decided to put my uniform back on, uh, based on the fact that I wanted to try to escape and it was kind of hard to do otherwise. And plus they wouldn't try me. They wouldn't try me. I could never go to trial on my refusing a direct order or a wall until I put my uniform back on. They wouldn't try me. So all those things said that took me into my uniform and then all this came down. Okay. Yeah. All the, and you know, Richard's Richard, death Richard and everything else came down. Yeah. Right. Right. And so there we were, you know, we're all, guys are looking at a long time, you know, and got, you know, in their trial a long time. I didn't go to trial. I, myself and Walter uh, Pulowski, the, the, the man who read our grievances and was my partner. And when we walked out, when we left the stockade and went to Canada, we escaped on Christmas Eve, 1968. And we're in, we're in Vancouver New Year's Day. Uh, can I can I ask you how you escaped, Keith? Oh sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we uh, were both working as uh, you know kind of carpenters. You know, we were doing you know paneling inside the captain's office. We're you know we're replacing a door, uh, doing some work in the, you know uh, wherever they needed it. Uh, but, but we just like took it on because uh, it was like uh, who doesn't when you're in jail doesn't want to carry around a hacksaw and wire cutters and a hammer, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, <laughs> sorry, but we got to walk around with these tools all the time. And we, we got to hide things. We got to make holes and stuff, and hide stuff, and, you know, and get into the supply offices and steal stuff. And, you know, so we were, we were moving, you know, trying to get ready to go. Yeah. You know, Walter. and yeah. And the word was out that anybody who could escape should of the 27, you know, absolutely. You know, just to take something away from them because we knew they were going to screw us good. You know, we knew that, but we still had to do something. We couldn't let, we couldn't let Richard's death just go by, <laughs> you know, and that was a, a pivotal point in, in uh, a lot of people's lives. And so um, where we were then, or where I was then was, was the idea of escape and slowly got, uh, you know, the best good opportunity is what we had to take. We couldn't really plan too tightly anything because we tried to get a car waiting for us. If we did get out on the days we were trying to try through visits and things like that, we'd pass that information. And, and, uh, the day we did get out the gate, they let us out to go put the tools away. Uh, Christmas Eve, nobody was around. And cause we had these hacksaws and stuff. It was really easy to say, Hey, look, they don't want us keeping them inside. We got to take them out. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, right. And he let us out <laughs> and let us go into the shed. And I said, hey, I got to build a little shelf to keep this up out of the water, the, you know, because it was, it was rainy. And and um, and we went out the window and had hats and underneath our shirts because you can't, you know, give you caps. Um, you have to have like a hard hat, you know, like a, the helmet liner. And, um, and so we put those on, lost our boots real quickly. And so we looked right and uh, jogged uh, toward the golf course and, you know, in, in step, just like we're drilling and, um, and climbed over a, you know, proverbial 13 foot wall, whatever tall it was, and uh, caught a cab to a safe house 
we were provided a ride to Canada. We got this ride from uh, a Franciscan priest who uh, chose Sontag, who drove us north in a vehicle that was loaned to us by a high school principal and her husband, who was a San Francisco police officer. Gave us a car, an old red Rambler station wagon. And, um, and we went to Priest River, Idaho, where we picked up uh, uh, Joe's uh, sister. And then we all drove up together. We figured that would be a good, good enough smokescreen. And um, we got across the border into Grand Forks, BC, and then uh, took a bus to Vancouver and got there you know, on New, Year, New Year's Day. <laughs> Yippee, there we were. So in about four, about four inches of snow. And uh, here we are. <laughs> Got a hotel room and kind of hung out, <laughs> looking around for what's next. The Canadian experience, uh, I, I met a woman, uh, um, a French-Canadian woman, uh, my, who became my wife and the mother of my two children, who and we divorced, uh, um, like, you know, after about nine years. But, but you know, I, and I had custody of the children. Uh, or I took custody of the children and brought them to California uh, during that period of time. And I was underground uh, because I needed help with my children. I, I didn't see a way for me to be able to do it what, by myself. What year was this? It, it was 1980. And so I was, you know, not really hiding, you know, I mean, I was just, you know, back home, you know, and many years after the war, the, you know, nobody was thinking about that. And, uh, you know, and although I had a lot of friends who knew knew the deal, and stayed with my parents for a year and a half, and then my girlfriend and I rented a place over in the coast in Half Moon Bay. We moved over there and lived there for you know my kids were in school, everything's got fine, and I dropped my driver's license in a gas station, you know, paying for it with a credit card, and. um they picked it up and handed it off to the next sheriff guy that came through. And the sheriff guy sent it over to San Bruno, you know, to the uh, town I was living in and uh, my hometown, old hometown. And uh, they gave me a call and said, Hey, why don't you come get your driver's license? I'm not shit. The, uh, the, the jig is up, so to speak. Uh, you know, and I said, I told my mother, I said, look, I think I just got to go and do this. I don't think I can evade this anymore. You know, I got two kids in there. I'm 38 years old. I just got to get this done, you know. And uh, it had been 20. So I did. It had been 21 years, 22 years since you'd escaped from from the army jail. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'd like to get this done, you know. And so I went down there. They arrested me and called the army. <laughs> and the army came to get me, and they they took me to the presidio where I spent a night in, not in the stockade, but in the jail, it was closed then, but it was a jail, uh, their little holding cell, you know, so I spent the night there, and then they drove, then they had two guys, I was in handcuffs the next morning, they put me in a, fed me, put me in a van, and uh, drove me to Fort Ord. And, and, and when, you, when you were at the Presidio again, yeah. uh, 1980 huh. is so, huh. it's so vastly such a vastly different time in my mind from 1968. Did it feel different? I mean, cause I mean the guards are a new generation of guards, the people who are working with you as a new generation of people, or was it, was it the same? I could have been their father. 
I mean, some of these guys were so young. I could have been their dad even at under 40. Yeah. You know, there was, that's the way I felt. And actually, among the prisoners and among the people that I contacted after that, very few of them were my age. They were my, almost all younger. I mean, when I, when I got to Fort Ord and I, they put me inside, uh, not the stockade, but a, just a barracks. I'm like, shit, this is okay, I guess. So I spent some time there until my 201 file came in. Once they saw my 201 file and realized what the fuck I had done, they put me in solitary confinement up in the stockade, even though I had had weekend passes, had gone home uh, at Thanksgiving and Christmas and or Christmas and New Year's. The Army. Anyway, um, and, and uh, solitary confinement, and uh, I had 18 months to do. Oh, shit. And so... Uh, and that was after the appeal, so, you know, had gone through year, years before. So, uh, I, and my lawyer was all over it. Uh, they pulled me out. Of, they pulled me out of Fort Ord after I was, um, I fell down the stairs, fell down the stairs, uh, and woke up in the hospital a couple of days later. What do you mean? You know, why with did my you, wife. Why did you put air quotes around uh, fell? Well, because I got, uh, cause I, I don't, cause I, I'm sure I got pushed down the stairs. Yeah. I'm sure I did. But, you know, I, I fell down the stairs. Never looks good for them when they say that anyway. And so you have no memory uh, of, of the incident. Is that what you're saying? Because, no, because no. I just have, I have memory, I memory of carrying a mattress and then waking up in the hospital. Yeah. So, uh, they were, they were converting the, the stockade from uh, army to all services, West coast disciplinary barracks. So they were building bunks, and bringing in mattresses, and I was I was on that detail. So okay. anyway, um, and so I woke up. Uh, fortunately, <laughs> and uh, my wife is near my near me, and I looked over across the room, and there were two in, armed MPs sitting in my room. In the hospital, and I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm you know just shows you how skewed it was. And even then, and because the, there was so much bad press, because I had been in the hospital and all this had gone on, the, the, the commanding general of the post said, get him out of here, right? And they shipped me to Fort Riley, Kansas within days and uh, ordered to put on a, a Class A uniform while I'm coming out, you know, coming out of solitary confinement. Okay, put your uniform on direct order to put your uniform on and walk me right out, put me in a car uh, with a guard on either side of me, drive me to the airport, put me on a plane with a guard on either side of me. And then, and the service made him take the handcuffs off. Hmm. You know, it's like, what a fucking Jesus. I'm some nonviolent prisoner. You know, it's like, yeah. peace activist. Right? It's, <laughs> so, it's so really, anyway, it's really most dangerous thing you can do. It's really interesting to me too, because it really, um, it's like a whole new in, – in my mind, it would seem like it's a whole new army dealing with like the previous generation's rebellion, right? Like didn't – I mean the, the Vietnam War experience sort of changed in my to, – to my understanding, changed the military a lot. I mean for one thing, the draft was abolished and so – but now you're being punished by this like new version yeah. of yeah. of the post-Vietnam military for – for what you did during during the Vietnam War, 
It seems very, exactly. it's like an, it's like an anachronism to me. Um, how did it feel to you? And, and were there supporters well, at knew- that time for you in the eighties or what had like, cause I mean, oh, yeah. the seventies were gone. So who was around to care about what was going on for you? Well, I was fortunate to have, uh, a lot of the people that I was con- connected with back in the sixties, I was still, in, I was still in contact with to a certain degree. And I had, I know I had their support. I know I had my family's support. Uh, I had a, uh, an excellent attorney. Um, uh, and I had people that were going to Washington DC, knocking on doors, trying to get me out, you know, and, um, you know, connecting with the secretary of the army and whoever they needed to, to lobby for me. They went to, they went to uh, one of the Kennedy's offices to, to try to get him to lobby, you know, and so forth and so on. So there was, we were working on it. And I, in the meantime, I was doing time. I had, I, I was in Fort Riley stockade for a while. Uh, and that was no fun. Uh, and uh, eventually I, I was made a carpenter again and was, uh, uh, barely remember this period of time. Uh, um, and I was, you know, fixing stuff again, uh, for the army, you know, putting a hinge on it, something there, you know, building a, uh, rate, building a riser to set buckets on. So it didn't have to bend over so far, whatever. And, um, you know, and, uh, I was working one day and I, one of the, one of the staff, the guards came over and said, Hey, look, you, uh, you, you gotta go and see the, uh, see the captain. You know, you gotta, you gotta see the captain. He's got he's got a message. Yes, he he's got one talking. So anyway, I went in and he said, "Hey, listen, I have a letter here. Your your sentence has been uh, remitted." Uh, I got a call right then from my attorney too, telling me that my sen- sentence had been remitted and I was to be released within 72 hours. You know, and and uh, that was that. I got to go up to my cell and grab my shit and tell everybody, "I'm I'm fucking out of here." And they, you know, and uh, and then I got applause. Yeah. <laughs> so, and because you know, it was like they knew what I was going through. Everybody inside knew. I'd been there for a long time. I'd cried my eyes out in solitary confinement more than once when I first got there. I mean, holy shit, you know. And so, um, they got their ounce of flesh, you know. I think, you know, uh, they felt that way at the time, anyway. And so, um, you know, and I was released uh, May tenth, nineteen eighty five. 17 years and two months after I was drafted, I got a dishonorable discharge, a $20 bill, and a suit of clothes, and a plane ticket home where I was drafted. And that's that. That ended my relationship with the United States military. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I've been bruised and battered, there's no doubt about it. At the same time, uh, uh, I, I saw people go through worse. I saw people you know, not come home from Vietnam. <laughs> I saw, you know, I saw a lot of people really, really get screwed up. And I, I just came back from Vietnam and seeing the people there that got screwed up, you know, so I don't feel so bad. I really don't. <laughs> uh, you know, I feel like I'm maybe one of the lucky ones. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Keith, uh, tell me about, you know, we're 50 years, we're coming up on the 50 year anniversary of the Presidio mutiny sit down. Um, so what, I mean, what do you want people to know for, for one thing, uh, who weren't alive in 1968 about, about what, about what's being, uh, uh, what's being recognized now five decades later? 
it's interesting to watch these 50 year anniversaries, you know, uh, come up. Um, it, it put me through my changes. Okay. Um, I, while in, while in Vietnam, I was at the 50th anniversary of the May Lai massacre and with veterans for peace and, um, astounding. Just, you know, can't, can't, I mean, I don't know how to explain it even, to tell you the truth. Very moving, very moving, very moving. I met, I met, a, I met a survivor of my life. So, you know, I'm just saying. Yeah, t- well, tell me a little bit about that. So you, you've uh, traveled very recently to Vietnam to, to the, to the, I was, yeah, to the I tra- village? I was what is there in now? In March. Uh, it's a, uh, a temple. In, in the village of my son, May Lai. Okay, there's two villages right next to each other. Um, and there's now they've built a temple, a memorial temple there. Uh, and they also have a, a museum there uh, of the event, of the massacre. Also, large photos of Hugh Thompson and his history. He flew in and landed in between the, the Americans who were killing the Vietnamese men, women, and children old men, women, and children, landed in between them and pulled a dozen of Vietnamese out and and, tra- and trained his 50, 50 or 30 caliber machine gun on the guys who were shooting and told his gunner, if you, they start shooting, you start shooting. You know, this guy's a fuck, guy, real hero, real hero. In Vietnam, hero. Here, not too many people know about it. There's a movie out. Anyway, a whistleblower of May Lai. Anyway, um, so that was very educational. And, and, uh, being there with so many Vietnamese, <laughs> okay. And so few white people walking around, uh, it's like we dressed in, I dressed in an onsai, uh, traditional male Vietnamese outfit, dress like, you know, and, um, and along with a few others just to, you know, be respectful and, uh, you know, we burned incense and, and, uh, did our thing and then did long walks around the, you know, the, the symbolic grave sites um, of three-year-olds and eight-year-olds, you know, it was and very, very uh, real. And, and, and then also um, there's so many people in Vietnam, just like there are here that are young. They don't remember the war at all. Uh, in 1975, there were 28 million people in Vietnam. Now there's 98 million people. <laughs> so there's about 50, 60 million people at least didn't know nothing about the war unless they're... But, but yet, almost every family in Vietnam was affected by that war. So it's like, hmm. It's, 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 it's vastly interesting to be among them, to tell you the truth. Really Really, really interesting, captivating. Is that the first yes. 50th anniversary event that you've had the occasion to attend? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I guess so. You know, not too many other ones that I know of. I didn't go to the Catsonville Nine one, and I didn't know uh, uh, really even the year that uh, the Port Hood Three did their thing. But it was '66. Yeah. So I mean, that's already 50 years. So, wow. um, yeah. So, I mean, the Nine for Peace will happen 50 years ago in July, 
there's no time to do anything for them, really. So we'll join it into the other one. That's all we can do. And I don't even know. Where, maybe I know where one of those guys is. You know, so, but uh, I do know where five of the twenty-seven are. So that's you know we're in contact and they're coming. So that's going to be interesting. You know, um, to I've, I've seen a few of these guys uh, often. You know, I'm like say you know. Uh, every couple of years or so. And the other guys, you know, not so much, maybe every, you know, one guy I haven't seen in 50 years. Yeah. And another guy I haven't seen in 10. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, all this is going on and, and building up to this. I'm telling you my, how I got here <laughs> to this, you know, and not even approach to this point. There's like, once I got out of the military, once I got out, I mean, my kids' teachers sent, you know, everybody in the class signed a card you know, saying, welcome home, mm-hmm. you know, and things like that for me. And they knew I was a resistor. And they knew, you know, so there was some warmth and, and good stuff around it, you know, some healing, you know, at the same time I got death threats. I asked Keith Mather to tell me about how he was approaching the work uh, that he's doing with Courage to Resist to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of the Presidio sit-down strike. The reason the Presidio stockade is a historical building is because of the mutiny. That's the most significant thing that ever happened there. But at this time, there is no official uh, recognition on the site of the mutiny, uh, nor of the murder of Richard Bunch. It shouldn't be skated over, you know. I think I think there should be a kind of a almost a whole wall that's you know about Richard. Uh, uh, I don't know if anybody else died there, but since he died there, he's somewhat significant, you know, person, you know, in history. And uh, without being morbid, but but the thing is, is that um, look at all the other lives that he shook up. I mean. He maybe, but the effects of what happened to him shook up and changed. I mean, lots and lots of people, parents, brothers and sisters, you know, wives, children. Some guys lost their kids over this, you know, to their wives and stuff. You know, so um, a lot of people got affected by this. And uh, that's the fallout of anything like this, I think, you know. And, and, and so with respect all that um, it's 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 an ongoing thing I don't think you I think that maybe the damage is done but the healing takes a lifetime because you've got to go through all these steps some guys haven't been back to the stockade I don't know how it's going to be for them I have no idea you know I got a general idea but how do I know I'd, I'd ride by there on my bike uh, you know three times a week you know I mean it's become less than, you know, uh, uh, I've tried to diminish it in my life and now I'm involved in lifting it up in a different way. So the Presidio Mutiny took place on October 14th, 1968. And we're speaking with Keith Mather today on the Courage to Resist podcast because we're coming up on the 50-year anniversary of that event. To learn more, you can go to the website Courage to Resist. Dot org. My thanks to Jeff Patterson, to Keith Mather, 
Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast anywhere where you get your podcasts, or you can listen to past episodes right there at the Courage to Resist website. Again, that's couragetoresist.org. Help Freesia support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others the recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to um, the Doing Time Show. I'm Peter. Um, we're on um, your dial 855am on your radio or um, 3cr.org.au. Um, you can go on the internet. Um, just going to play another um, podcast from Mamiya Abdul Jamal. Last Thursday, there was a big um, court case, and um, people were going to flood the court case and to us uh, to free Mamiya. So we'll just go straight to that now. If the corporate media's job is to sell fear, conflict, and ignorance, yours is to show courage amidst adversity. Cooperation, community, complexity, and the sheer genius and brilliance that exists in all of humanity. People have to be able to see and sense a better way forward. So there's been a lot of talk about political prisoners lately. Have you thought about looking into any of the political prisoners locked up in Philly, like uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal? Like, yeah, Mumia, I got in court, I got out the next week, I was looking at the news, he got in court. And it was just the light, like, Mumia was the only light shed on Pennsylvania uh, judicial system in a long time. After nearly 45 years in prison, Bell, who was serving a sentence of 25 years to life, was just granted parole. Like thousands of others in America, my family and I are political prisoners trapped by our illegal system. We committed no crime, yet we received life sentences with no possibility of parole or reprieve. And we survive in a state of constant darkness, not unlike that experience in solitary confinement. I'm not sure that is correct. That was Marie Faulkner, the widow of Daniel Faulkner, you know, that Philly police officer who was killed on the job. Mumia Abu-Jamal was convicted of this crime, but many believe him to be innocent. So what is a political prisoner? A political prisoner is a person who is imprisoned because that person's actions or beliefs are contrary to those of his or her government. In some cases, political prisoners are targeted by the state unjustly. In other cases, political prisoners are imprisoned for engaging in, quote, illegal actions that they believe will advance their cause. To sum up, a political prisoner is one who is imprisoned because their political beliefs or actions are a threat to the status quo. Yeah, that makes more sense. 
1979, Mumia won Columbia University's prestigious Major Armstrong Award for its radio editorial of the Pope's visit to Philadelphia. In 1981, Philly Magazine identified him as one of 81 people to watch. That same year, Mumia was sentenced to death. Keep in mind, Mumia became a target of the police and the FBI when he joined the Black Panther Party at the age of 14. Mumia's FBI file contains a photo of him with the word dead written on the back. The FBI couldn't kill him, so the Philly DA and police framed him. But now, a landmark Supreme Court ruling could overturn Mumia's conviction. In Williams versus Pennsylvania, the high court ruled that Ronald Castile, the judge who denied Terrence Williams' appeal, had a conflict of interest. It's a conflict of interest because it's a violation of the Constitution for a judge to rule on a case in which he previously worked on as a prosecutor. The same conflict of interest violation in the Williams case surfaces in Mumia's case and involves the same judge. Ronald Castile was a prosecutor in Mumia's case and later a judge on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. He reviewed and denied Mumia's appeal. So as you can see, Mumia's case is now back in court and the prosecutor is arguing that Judge Castile was not biased and that he didn't have any direct involvement in Mumia's case when he was prosecutor in Philadelphia. Let me give you some background information. Ranu Castillo is a DA turned politician. He was elected judge of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court on a tough on crime platform. And as we know, in Philadelphia, Mumia's case has been used by politicians to manipulate fear of supposed cop killers to win elections. Case in point, I read a letter that Castillo sent to then Senator Bob Casey, and this is what it said, and I quote, I urge you to send a clear and dramatic message to all police killers that the death penalty actually means something. Now, given that Mumia has been demonized as Philadelphia's top cold-blooded cop killer, who do you think is number one on the list? And in a new dramatic development, Judge Castile told this to the intelligencer about Mumia's case. As DA, I didn't have anything to do with it until it went up on appeal. None of them ever asked me to recuse myself on appeal when I was a justice. To me, it was just another case. So, if Mumia would have asked you to recuse yourself from this case, you would have? Well, I've got some news for you, buddy. I'm looking at a legal document here and Mumia and his attorneys are asking you to recuse yourself from this case. So it gets put up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And at that point, one of the new members of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court was a guy named Ronald Castile. Who was Ronald Castile? He was a former DA in Philadelphia. So Castile votes to reject the appeal, but then he issues a separate opinion saying, why I'm not going to recuse myself. He says, the defense is blaming me and saying I can't be fair because the FOP made me man of the year and they gave me money to campaign on and they gave me campaign support and so they're questioning my ability to be impartial because of FOP support well there's four other members on the court that received money from the FOP and he named their names so now we have five members of a seven member court who have taken money 
from the FOP, which is the prime organization trying to get Abu Jamal executed. Let us become that which we revere and remember. Let us be abolitionists, strengthened by the positive it will take collective action to win. Please call, email, or fax the DA's office with this message. Time to bring Mumia home. You can lock me down, I will never be your prisoner. Victims are the ones that just obey and just give it up. Even in this world, we enslaved like some prisoners. Our freedom fight our fights till the world listen up. Let us become that which we revere and remember. Let us be abolitionists, strengthened by the positive contribution of our ancestors, black and white. Let us struggle to make progress. Let us build the movement by making it blacker, more Latino, and more working class. Let us understand that social movements change history. So for, for more info on me and, and the court case, go to... Um prisonradio.org, um, we'll update you about the court case, every one of me. Um, we'll just go to an announcement now. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Mr. Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.